0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon and by University of North Carolina Press. One book that we think you would like is City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez. Los Angeles imprisons more people than any other city in the United States. It is the carceral capital of the world, but its punishing habits took root much earlier than the wars on crime and drugs. Marshaling more than two centuries of evidence— City of Inmates unmasks how Native elimination, immigrant exclusion, and Black disappearance were at the heart of imprisonment in Los Angeles, revealing that mass incarceration is mass elimination. According to Khalil Gibran Mohammed, City of Inmates is a remarkable book. Since the Spanish colonial period, every kind of American, from Native Americans to Mexican and Chinese Americans, to landless whites and African Americans— has passed through California's jailhouse doors with profound implications for the shape of our nation today. No telling or teaching of the past is complete without reckoning with these supremely urgent stories. City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Pick up or download your copy now. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. During his first inaugural address, Bill Clinton crowed that communications and commerce are global, investment is mobile, technology is almost magical, and ambition for a better life is now universal. Those ambitions, however, have for many been frustrated because that magic in the hands of Clinton and other high priests of neoliberalism has been used for evil rather than good. Workers have for years faced a process of accelerated globalization and automation administered by a bipartisan establishment of technocratic elites who have ensured the redistribution of wealth into the hands of the rich. This is an elite that has abetted the decimation of labor unions and whose primary disagreements are over how severely those expelled from the labor market should be allowed to suffer. In 2000, Bill Clinton stated that, in today's knowledge-based economy, what you earn depends on what you learn. It's true, an individual with more education is more likely to make more than an individual with less. But this individual-level truth obscures a broader structural reality. The labor market has been restructured to require a vast supply of low-wage labor and much smaller numbers of people who are rewarded with riches for managing the system. On a systemic level, educational attainment mostly helps to structure who gets the small number of good jobs and who else is relegated to the much larger number of bad jobs. It does not, by and large, restructure the labor market. What can, however, restructure the labor market into one that provides just wages for everyday people is a strong labor movement, something that, after decades of brutal attack, We don't have at the moment. My guest today is Sarah Jaffe, a Nation Institute reporting fellow and the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. She is the co-host of Dissent Magazine's Belabored podcast and the creator of Interviews for Resistance, a syndicated series and podcast of conversations with organizers, troublemakers, and agitators against Trumpism. We're going to talk about the state of work. Particularly, the manufacturing and retail workers she writes about in recent pieces at The Nation and Racked.com. Sarah Jaffe, welcome back to The Dig, our first time, two time guest.
1: Woo, I'm special.
0: Thanks. For having me. <laughs> um, you have two really interesting recent pieces out about the state of work in the United States and in short, the state of work is pretty crappy. First, I want to talk to you about a piece you had in the nation about Indiana factory workers, including at the now famed carrier plant, which Trump had pledged to save and then later he made a big performance out of convincing the company not to close the plant. What did Trump pull off at Carrier in terms of the performance? And more substantively, what actually happened?
1: You know, I keep comparing it to George W. Bush's mission accomplished moment, right? You know, when he landed on the aircraft carrier with the friggin flight suit on and he, (laughs) you know, everybody was like, oh, my God, he's so manly. And it was really disgusting. Um, That's basically what Trump did at carrier, like right down to the masculinity signifying, right? Because it's a factory. And what's more manly than a factory um, other than an aircraft carrier? And it's about as much of a disaster that he's leaving it in his wake. Um, so, when you look at what's actually happening in Indianapolis, um, the carrier plant was not the only one that announced in a very short period of time that it was going to close and move to Mexico. And in fact, Indiana is both the state that has still the highest um, manufacturing per cap, like manufacturing employment per capita, and also the one that's losing it the fastest. And so at the same time, almost as Carrier announced that they were going to shut down and move to Mexico, the Rexnard plant, which is literally less than two miles away, it's around the corner, also announced that it was going to close down and move to Mexico. And so The carrier plant, Trump and Bernie Sanders, both sort of seized on on the campaign trail. They really made a big deal about this um, as an example of what's happening to workers because of of crappy trade deals that Hillary Clinton's husband had signed. Um, But what didn't happen on the Trump end, at least, is any sort of serious consideration of like what it would actually take to reverse this trend. So instead, what happened was that Trump did what he says he's good at, and he made a deal. Um, And Mike Pence was still governor of Indiana at the time. Now, of course, he's our vice president, unfortunately. Um, And Trump basically got Pence to promise this company a bunch of tax breaks and probably threatened their government contracts or promised them more government contracts, because the company that owns Carrier is a major, major recipient of government dollars um, To keep some jobs in the country. Um, that's not that many jobs. The story, the report just came out, I think, a week or two ago that 600 workers at the plant are going to be laid off just before Christmas. Yay, America! Um, and Dallas Street at Rexnard, you have another 300 and something workers who are all being laid off, um, many of them already gone, I think. Um, and so, What you have is like a tiny Band-Aid slapped on a major problem that isn't going to be solved company by company and deal by deal.
0: Yeah. So what is that problem? You write that the carrier workers story has been oversimplified.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I say elsewhere in the piece that like to really solve their problems is going to mean solving the problems of global capitalism. And like, that's not really an exaggeration. Um, we have a serious problem here, which is that um, capital always goes searching for the cheapest labor it can find. And capital has also captured the governments of most major countries, um, even the ones that are still theoretically communist. Um, And so (laughs) what you get then is you get a global race to the bottom and that's not stopping. And the workers, the carrier plan are very aware of this, right, they were kind of, one of them said to me, You know, if we hadn't scrapped the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, then the workers in Mexico would be getting screwed over because the plants would be closing in Mexico and moving to Vietnam for even lower wages. Um, And so barring like serious consideration of what 21st century manufacturing and job creation policy looks like, we're going to keep having this problem.
0: And in in what way then do you see the carrier story as having been oversimplified is it just that
1: oh <laughs> i mean it's it's like on every level it's oversimplified um for instance it gets sold as a story of the emblematic white working class right um in fact the carrier plan is 50 percent women um workers of color are overrepresented by like in comparison to the population of the city um the chuck jones the the president of the union who kind of got famous by getting in uh, by Trump angrily tweeting at him has retired. The president of the union is now a black man who's worked at Carrier for 19 years, Robert Jones, um, excuse me, Robert James. Um, You have like this myth of what industrial work looks like that isn't really true at all. Um, You have on top of that, you have sort of myths of like, again, what it takes to fix this problem. Um, And then you have the myth that Trump saved everybody's job, right? Which he didn't. He saved a couple hundred jobs. Most of them are still being fired. And the company is investing most of the money that it's getting in tax breaks in trying to develop robots to replace even more workers. So, like, this this idea that, like, Trump just came in and he helped the white workers is, like, it's wrong on every single level.
0: And another thing that you show in this article in terms of how it's been oversimplified is that it goes back well before this recent round of outsourcing and is not just about free trade deals um, it uh, goes back to you write the imposition of a two-tier contract after the 2008 financial crisis um, and as you just mentioned um, automation um, which under a just system could be a perfectly lovely thing um, under, Capitalism means people are losing their jobs. Um, Indiana's union density has plummeted from 40 percent in 1970 to under 11 percent today. So it's that big picture you tell in the story that that doesn't get across every day.
1: Well, right. Indiana, um, you know, everybody remembers. Oh, I assume most of your listeners remember anyway, the um, protest in Wisconsin in 2011 Um, over public sector workers losing union rights. That was also going on in Indiana. Um, Indiana was the first state in the most recent wave of the sort of reincarnation and spreading north into the industrial heartland of so-called right to work bills. And I wanna like pause on right to work for a second because a lot of people even on the left don't really know what right to work and what it doesn't do. Um, So a lot of people think that right to work means that you can't be in a union, that unions are illegal. That's not true. Um, we have very strong unions in some right to work states, like the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas, for instance, in right to work Nevada. Um, but what right to work does do is it makes being a union member basically optional while being covered, while you get the benefits of the union contract if you were in that shop. Now, the union that I spoke with um, the folks from who are represents the union that represents the workers at Carrier. At, um, at Rexnord and at Sumco, which was a plant around the corner, which I assume we'll get to in a little bit. Um, that union did a pretty good job of not hemorrhaging may- members when um, Indiana went right to work. They had a sort of list of shame printed on a chartreuse piece of paper while I was there um, of the people that decided to stop paying dues. But mostly they had kept their membership pretty strong. They a pretty engaged, involved union um And that shows, right, in the fact that even while these two plants are closing down, they took a third one out on strike. Um, And so, you know, you look at these questions of of what different laws, different attacks on unions do, and it's a complicated picture. um, But one surefire way to lower union density is to lay off a bunch of workers. Um, and so, you know, and the the story that gets told is that the workers are greedy and the workers have demanded too much and that's why these jobs are going to Mexico. And in fact, when we look at all of these plants, these workers had all taken concessions in the, the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. They had all agreed to two tier contracts, which lock in a lower wage level for new workers that will never get no matter how long they work there to the level of, um, the workers with more seniority. And so they had given back, given back um, vacation time, sick days. They had these, um, the workers at Sumco, their healthcare plan was worse than mine. And I have a crappy Affordable Care Act, high deductible plan. And these are people who supposedly have the last good jobs in America. Um, And so, you know, these are, they've been giving back. And it wasn't enough because it's never enough.
0: Um, as you predicted, I did want to talk more about Sumco, where workers um, do something I don't quite understand called real-to-real electroplating.
1: Um, <laughs> I, you know, they have a non-disclosure agreements, so they couldn't really explain too much to me about what they actually do. Other than that, it's really dangerous. Um, that they work with a lot of dangerous chemicals, and one guy lost his foot recently.
0: Wow, um, you spoke to one worker a 23-year veteran of at the plant, and I think a union leader, Bill Horton. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, right now, we're just trying to get back everything we lost in 2009 and 2010. Yeah. That year, we lost over half our vacation days, half our personal times. We agreed to not take a pay raise for two years. After that, the company kept asking for uh, concessions, even though as far as they knew, the company had returned to profitability. Um, the some workers recently struck and won. What, what happened?
1: So this was totally coincidental to the fact that the time that I went down to Indiana and I just kind of wanted to go after the mainstream press had stopped paying attention to Carrier and see like what the real story is three months after Trump's mission accomplished speech. So I happen to get there and I go down to the union hall and I'm sitting there talking to Chuck Jones and a few other folks who are hanging out there. And they tell me, oh, yeah, we're taking a a strike vote at at the Sumco plant, which is literally across the street from Carrier. Um, And, uh, you know, if they vote yes by four o'clock, we'll be on the picket lines by five o'clock, which coincidentally was International Women's Day. So it was also the day of the International Women's Strike. Um, And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll see you on the picket line then. Um, and yeah, despite again, literally looking at the plant across the street that, um, is not quite closing down, but is laying off a bunch of people, they went out on strike and they actually won a bridge out of the two tier system so that new workers still start at the lower rate, but they can actually get up after a certain period of years. They can actually get up to the higher wage rate. Um, which is pretty impressive considering, um, most unions don't go on strike, any more period, um, strike charts are, are just strike frequency charts are just really depressing things to look at. So I was pretty impressed that they, um, that they did that, that they went out on strike in the literal face of outsourcing. And, you know, it was really, it, it makes the story all that much more sort of interesting and complicated, right? When you look at this, these companies had all lost profits after, um the financial crisis, right That's not surprising to anybody. Um, the entire economy was suffering. but in each case they had you know the workers had given something back they had a, a, agreed to two-tier, they had um, you know made all sorts of concessions. but at this point, the workers at some go were mad. they were really angry. Um, <laughs> like you know I was sitting there and I can curse on this, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so i was like, them one day, and I sort of went by Dunkin' Donuts and just like swung by the picket line to hang out before the the Rex Nord worker that I was meeting with, and just sitting there with the guy, with one of the guys, and somebody drives by and goes, "Why are y'all out here?" and he goes, "Cause we hate them cocksuckers." And <laughs> I wanted to put that in the piece, and it got cut for length because it was four thousand words, and it was still too long. Um, and. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the the anger is so real, and like, you know, again, I just I I not to relitigate the Democratic primary, but good lord, how could you like walk into a country where the stuff like this is happening every day and say America's already great and think that that's gonna win you votes?
0: Anyway. Um- well, actually, my next question was about to getting the primary. So uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, got to do it at least once a show. Me, <laughs> um, yeah. So like you mentioned earlier, it wasn't just Trump, but Bernie Sanders, who also yeah. made a point of highlighting the carrier worker's plight. Yeah. Um, and I believe the union endorsed him in the primary.
1: The union endorsed him in the primary. I, one of the first things I noticed, um, other than this really amazing um, poster making fun of Trump, was framed pictures of Bernie Sanders with Chuck Jones on the wall. Um, Chuck tells me that, you know, Bernie came down and, you know, hung out with them. He supported them. He still checks in on them to see how they're doing. Um, he, you know, he came and talked to these workers and that's not something people forget. And like, obviously when you're running for president, it's hard to get to every single workplace that has a labor struggle because that would be every single workplace. But, you know, in this place, there was no, um, Hillary Clinton didn't go there, she sent Bill, which is almost worse, like that's kind of a real insult because these people look at Bill Clinton's face and they see NAFTA, right? Um, And he didn't even go anywhere near the plant, which probably is for the best. Um, And yeah, it just, you know, it it was really striking to me that this plant was full of, these plants, I should say, all of them were full of workers who loved Bernie Sanders who endorsed Bernie Sanders happily. And when it came time to the general election, enough of them were voting for Trump that the union was neutral. And that's a really telling thing that we really need to be aware of. And it's it's very possible to overstate the quote-unquote working-class support for Trump. Um, but the fact is that the election was swung by very narrow margins in a lot of states that have a lot of plants that are feeling just what these workers were feeling. And you can't sort of discount the fact that I'm talking to a guy who has, is telling me about going to union school at Eugene Debs's house and learning about Eugene Debs and buying a Eugene Debs pin for his bag and telling me that neither of the two major parties cares about workers and we need a workers party and then that he voted for Trump.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's been this, um, I don't know if interesting is the right word, there has been this big debate um, in which I've been involved on occasion over two things. First, whether support for Trump is just racist or about economic issues. Um, and second, whether working class people played a key role in getting Trump elected or whether actually it was just well-to-do right wing suburbanite car dealership owners or whatever. And it seems clear from your reporting other people's reporting data, that the answer is all of the above. Um, you know, it, 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 like you said, one can way to emphasize the role of the aggrieved white working class voter in switching uh, in uh, swinging over to Trump. But those people exist and they existed in really critical Rust Belt states. And you met some of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they they did. And they had varying reasons and sort of very and like. One of the things, too, is that like a lot of these studies that are sort of trying to break down class we don't have a good metric for what class is that you can like quantify. Right. So when we're talking about a lot of studies, will use not college educated as the metric. Well, by that metric, then Chuck Jones, John Feltner and Kyle Beeman are all in a different class from each other because Chuck Jones didn't finish high school, went to work at Rexnard at age 17, lying about his age. John Feltner has an engineering degree. Kyle Beeman has a communications degree. But yet all of these guys work in the same plant. So you can't use college degree in that way. You also, like income is not a great, you know, you also, right, you have Mark Zuckerberg who didn't graduate from college. So like, you know, there are really bad metrics for, you know, to stand in for what class actually is.
0: just as the metrics are horrible when it comes to the uh, studies purporting to show that uh, the Trump voters were motivated by racism and not by economics, which is premised on the idea that they are somehow unrelated phenomenon.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, that that is real. Right. The idea that I mean, we just need to look at history to see that. Right wing populist and fascist movements arise in bad times. That is a fact. People don't just vote for Nazis because everything is awesome. Right. Um, and the poll that I'm really struck by uh, was an exit poll that came out. Um, I believe CNN. It's in an article I wrote somewhere that. Um, on the day of the election that said some 75% of voters wanted a quote, strong leader to take the country back from the rich and powerful. 75% of all voters, not Trump voters, not Clinton voters. So clearly some of each had that answer, right? Um, That's what right-wing populism sells itself as, right? Um, And this was absolutely the, the thing that Trump sold. And, you know, the the workers that I talk with, right, some of them hated Donald Trump. Chuck Jones was never a fan of Donald Trump. Robert James was never a fan of Donald Trump. Um, That did break down to some degree by race lines, like very few of the workers of color were fans of Trump, but plenty of the white ones were also not fans of Trump. So it's not a perfect, you know, split.
0: Well, well, uh, that, uh, that concludes our, uh, <laughs> my weekly, my weekly requisite Bernie would have won a portion of the show. Um,
1: and you know, I really resist saying things like that, but like when you look at the way, where the map was, who the workers, who the people were that voted that way, the majority of Trump support is people like my parents who would vote for, you know, anything with, with the R next to their name. Um, they just, they would never vote for Hillary Clinton. That would never happen. Um, and that is most of who voted for Trump. There's a small fraction of people. And the reason that I think it matters to think about them and talk to them and understand why they voted for Trump is that they should be on our side. This guy has a Eugene Debs pin. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be. And you can support them on patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by the listeners who support us on Patreon, and by Verso, which has been publishing radical books for nearly half a century. One title that we think Dig listeners would enjoy is October, the story of the Russian Revolution, by award-winning author China Mieville. In a panoramic sweep stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire— October is a narrative history that uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, this is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate, of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, check out October, the story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville. Out now from Verso. So you also reported from the Rexner plant, which you mentioned, which is around the corner from Carrier, um, and they make ball bearings. That plant is closing, which means layoffs. Um, you quoted a longtime worker there about what what that feels like. Um, he said... Going into something at an entry level and with a 27-year-old child, two nine-year-old kids, a house payment, car payments, I just can't do that. Unfortunately, money is an issue. It seems like there are two different stories playing out here. One is these young people walking into a job market that mostly offers horrible jobs, and then older people suddenly, after years in a decent career, being thrown into that horrible job market before they can afford to retire, which must be just terrifying and disorienting
1: yeah and you know i should know that the worker who was the most sort of you know okay with what was going on he wasn't okay with it and the one who was the most forgiving of trump was the one who was like a couple years from retirement the guys who are a little bit younger who still have kids that they're taking care of um who still have 20 years or so in the workforce to look forward to those guys are just like and and also interestingly Every single one of them had been through this before. All of them had had jobs at plants that already had closed down. And so this is like, it's not even the first time they're experiencing this. Um, But one of the things, and the reason that I got that that quote came from, I made a point to ask everybody what they would do if they could do anything. If money wasn't a factor, if they were going to get the same salary that they were making at Rexnord, a carrier at Sumco, anywhere else, doing anything what would they want to do? Almost none of them said they'd want to keep doing what they're doing. Right. This idea that like manufacturing workers only want to do manufacturing work that mine workers really deeply want to be in mines. It doesn't track with my reporting. It doesn't track with research. Um, Ruth Milkman wrote a wonderful book um, several years ago called farewell to the factory. That is worth looking at, at if you want to think about this question, it's, not that but it is that they are these guys are not looking at a world that offers them a bunch of other options there's an amazon warehouse there's a target warehouse right around the corner from these plants um, those things pay 10 12 dollars an hour um you know I, again i'm talking to two two of the three guys that i you know talked to about were telling me about their college degrees and how the factory paid better than the work they could get with those um, you know, we know this. Um, we know about the graduates with no future, right? We just think of them as being, you know, in their 20s, not in their 50s. Um, and so, you know, this this question of what we're going to do here, what we're going to actually do to make sure that these people are not completely screwed. Um, you know, the Republicans plan is also to take away their health insurance, um, literally kick them while they're down and we have to like think seriously about what what our plan actually is because it's actually as you said it's a plan that has to include these people it has to include people who got laid off after 2009 and have never gotten another job it's got to include people who are just graduating college it's going to have to include people who are just graduating from high school and can't afford to go to college because we have to fix the college problem too um you can't just sort of say to people like, oh, just get retrained and there'll be a job that magically happens in front of you. That's not true. And if there is, it's more likely to go to the young person who just got out of college rather than, again, the person who has two kids to feed.
0: And that requires a program that appeals to working class people as a whole, not the this kind of iconic homogenous somehow apart from everything else, white working class and which, yeah. which is what you saw at these plants is a multiracial, um, diverse working class. Racial,
1: multi-gender, multi-ethnic, um, multi-citizenship status working class. Right. And this is a problem that we have to actually, we have to actually address all of these things. And the other thing that I want to flag is that like, we have not done a good job about, of, sort of inoculating people against dog whistles if people like these guys are willing to vote for Trump even after all the racist junk that he was saying. Um, And so that's the other thing that I do think is really important to talk about is that like a lot of people were not necessarily motivated by Trump's racism, but everybody who voted for Trump had to be able to bracket that. They had to be able to bracket the sexism and say, yeah, well, okay. And like, just like people of the left, who voted for Hillary Clinton had to bracket the fact that she was probably going to take us to another war um, and had to bracket, you know, the all sorts of things, Walmart board membership, whatever it is, people had to be able to say that's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal that he calls Mexicans rapists. It's not that big a deal that he talked about grabbing women by the pussy. And so we can't just say We have to have an economic program that appeals to white working class people, whatever that mythical identity is. We actually have to address this stuff because there should be no way that somebody sees Bernie Sanders and Trump as sort of equivalent choices.
0: You mentioned that you saw some of the alternatives to these union manufacturing jobs near Carrier, the on-demand staffing temp agency, the Target in Amazon distribution centers that pay okay. like $12 and uh, have no union. You wrote another piece that I want to talk about, about this, this uh, brave new economy um, <laughs> in rack.com, which is a interesting place to write about labor issues. If a good, a really I'm glad it's going to be there or is there Yeah. Um, on retail workers in Pittsburgh, you quote from uh, uh, someone from UFCW as saying, Bedrock union industrial jobs, as personified by U.S. Steel, literally turned into a big strip of low wage, high turnover retail jobs.
1: I mean, it's just like Homestead Steel, right, is this iconic like site in US labor history. It was the site of an extremely bloody labor battle, um a major lockout that turned incredibly violent. Pinkerton guards called in, bunch of workers shot. Um it was the place notor- notably if any of our your listeners are uh fans of uh, Emma Goldman and Sasha Berkman, it was the place where uh, Henry Clay Frick made them mad enough that Sasha Berkman tried to shoot Henry Clay Frick, <laughs> failed. <laughs> um but so this, this is this place that has just this, like it towers over sort of American labor history and now it's smokestacks tower over a mall because it's now a mall. Um, and I, that is just like, you can't come up with a better metaphor for the economy that we've got right now. Um, and I was trying, and we, and and we I, journalists I, are I, sick
0: people when you, when, when, when initially you see something like that, you're like, yeah, that's going in the lead of my story.
1: I, you know, you just like, you, you, oh, um, I, I tried, I actually wanted to, um, you know, see if there were any of the workers who had been laid off from any of the plants who were now working in retail. we did not find anybody who had that particular story, but I did have, um, you know, this anyway, um, the, you know, the, the big Macy's in downtown Pittsburgh had also closed recently. Those had been union jobs. So, you know, the job, plant closures and uh, job site closures of all sorts are problems in all sorts of industries. Um, you know, I live in New York where hospital closures have been a big thing recently, um, which is also right. The same thing happens there when you are a nurse or a doctor or an orderly or a cafeteria worker, or a janitor in the hospital. Um, you're in the same position as somebody who's losing their job in the factory. Um, and so, you know, we, we like, it's a common problem that people are experiencing that we shouldn't like fetishize as a problem only of industrial workers. Um, but thinking about retail, you know, the, the common perception of retail work is that it's part-time jobs for sort of kids or housewives, right? People who don't really need to pay their bills and that is just not really true. And there was also, it's also true that, uh, if you have a decent union job in retail, you can actually make a career out of it. And you know, for that piece, I also spoke with a couple of women who are on the bargaining team for the RWDSU um, local that represents the workers at Bloomingdale's in New York. And these are women who have been at Bloomingdale's as long as the factory workers have been at the factory. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it's the unions and not the type of work that's important.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by listeners who support us on Patreon and by Verso, which has been publishing radical books for nearly half a century. One title that we think Dig listeners would enjoy is The Dilemmas of Lenin Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution by Tariq Ali. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, Ali paints an illuminating portrait of the leader of the October 1917 uprising one of the most misunderstood leaders of the 20th century. In his own time, there were many, even among his enemies, who acknowledged the full magnitude of his intellectual and political achievements. But his legacy has been lost in misinterpretation. He is worshipped, but rarely read. The Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, Empire, Love, Revolution, by Tariq Ali. Out now from Verso. Hey, this is Boss Chris and editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh- uh, show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support the show, go to Patreon.com and look up the Dig. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks
1: and uh hope
0: you enjoy the show. Well, I, I wanted to to ask you about that. Um, and I'm not immune to industrial nostalgia, even though I know it's uh problematic. Um, but but yeah, can you can you dig into that a little more? Is the difference between um the ideal high wage, good benefits union manufacturing job and a crappy, low paid, um, no control over one schedule, non unionized retail job. Does it have to do with the jobs relation to uh, sort of place in the process, uh, the process of production and capitalism, or is it something just more basic about worker, the presence or absence of worker organized worker power?
1: I mean, I think it's a lot of things, right? So the fact that unions were the strongest in, um, in manufacturing is itself a result of a lot of different factors, right? Everything from like good old fashioned, you know, Marxist theory to, um, at which it's, you know, it's to understand that like you can most, you have the most power at this particular point in the production system because you can shut down production. Um, although these days we talk a lot about logistics and and um, the fact that, for instance, the port truck drivers who are on strike now in California as we speak also have a lot of power to disrupt um, capitalism. But also, you know, the the basic fact of gender was an important one. Um, I talked to Carrie Gleason, who was the co-founder of the Retail Action Project and now works at the Center for Popular Democracy, about, you know, the history of the uh, the, um, Woolworths workers, who also had a sit-down strike that is not as famous as the Flint sit-down strike, um, and that at the time that they did that, they had to sort of fight to be recognized as workers who were as worthy and as organizable as the men, mostly men at that time, who worked in the auto plants that flip you know, where, where the um, famous UAW sit down strikes were. And so when you like put all of these things together and also that retail um, has had higher union density in the past, although it was never as high as factory work. Um, We have a a complicated picture here, right? Of what it actually means to have good jobs. Um, Manufacturing, is still a part of our economy, whether we like it or not, most of it is not done in the same way that it was done 100 years ago, whether that is because it's done overseas or done by robots or not done at all. Um, But we have to understand that like the fastest growing jobs in this country, even with layoffs and closures, are still retail service, food service, um, home care, and nursing. And those are all jobs that are majority women. And other than nursing, they are all very low wage and very low protection.
0: And so sketch out when it comes to retail, what you found in terms of the situation on wages and benefits and also something that has been coming up time and time again and getting a lot more attention recently is uh, scheduling.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm really obsessed with the, the question of scheduling because it, it connects to the question of time, which is, Notably back 100 and something years ago was the major, major focus of the labor movement in this country for a long time. And that was the eight hour day struggle. Um, And that was notably unifying across different types of work to say we should have eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what we will as the chant went. um, That was a real leveling kind of a demand and like the fight for 15, $15 an hour, wage, which turned into a, a political demand for a $15 an hour minimum wage that has had somewhat of that same kind of, um, effect because you have workers in different industries rallying behind this because a lot of workers make less than minimum or make less than $15 an hour. Um, the question of time is also really important if we look at, um, issues of automation, for instance, if we literally just have fewer jobs in the future, then how we distribute those jobs is going to be a question and that's a question of time and how much time we spend at work. So the scheduling demands that are being made right now are, um, largely coming in industries that were never standardized the same way that manufacturing has standardized again, because of unions. So you have retail retail is open earlier in the morning or early in the morning and open till you know, 10 PM or later. And it's, They're open in part to be able to accommodate workers who work a more traditional nine to five schedule. Um, But that means that workers in retail are, you know, there is more sort of possible hours in the day. These things are portable. Um, The new trick is that they have a lot of workers working short shifts and not full time hours, which gives you essentially your built in reserve labor. Right. So nobody is working enough hours. Everybody wants more hours. They're more easy. They're more easily disciplined. And you have enough people if you fire somebody. Um, And this is further complicated by the introduction of very fancy computer software that essentially makes schedules for you. And what it does is it reads things like the weather report, the profits from last year at this time, the profits from last week at this time. Um, and it shaves can shave schedules down to like the half hour to 15 minutes. In some case it screws people's lives all around. It treats workers, of course, not particularly like they are humans with lives, families, other commitments, children, parents, um, And all of this is combined to make... They're just
0: labor widgets, Sarah.
1: Ah, I know. Um, All of this is combined to make retail, um, along with fast food and a couple of other sites, um, really a place where workers have very little um, control over their time, which, among other things, is complicated because it makes it hard for you to get another job if you're not making enough money, which notoriously got McDonald's in a lot of trouble, right, when they... planning website for their workers to financially plan their lives, basically assumed they would have a second job, except they're not scheduled in a way that allows them to do that. Um, So this is um, being... Rectified in the same way that the fight for 15 is being rectified basically with legislation on the um, city level So notably cities that have passed the $15 an hour minimum wage are sort of looking to scheduling questions next So I was in emeryville, california, which has the highest minimum wage in the country
0: and that's in the east bay
1: That is in the east bay. Yes, it is like a little tiny retail utopia carved out between oakland and berkeley Um, and it so they had passed this, this, um, fair scheduling act that they were working on figuring out how to implement while I was there because it's a small, small place. It doesn't have a labor department or anything like that. So they are working on how this is going to be implemented, but it requires things like predictability pay. So if you are at work and your boss says it's slow, go home, they have to pay you for at least another hour. Um, if you get called in, when you are at home and your boss says, Hey, somebody else didn't show up. I need you to come in. They have to pay you an extra hour. Um, they have to give you your schedule two weeks in advance so that you can no. Lo- they can no longer sort of give you your schedule on, on Thursday evening and expect you to be there at 9am Friday morning. Um, and so this stuff is, is still fairly minimal, but it's the beginning of a way for workers to exert some control over their time again and i think this is a really important thing the labor movement needs to be paying attention to
0: so zooming out and looking at both what you saw in indiana and in retail stores all over the country in the context of labor just being decimated over the last few decades and we were speaking uh we were emailing earlier with this uh amazing, disturbing map on NPR that shows just union density falling from, you know, the forties and thirties percent, uh, a few decades ago to around, you know, 10 in most places or less today in this context, what, what way forward is there for labor? And I expect you to have all the answers to this question that other people have tried and failed at.
1: Um, Some of them are things like this, right, are are municipal um, and statewide pressure for legislation like this. And right now, because of Trump, because nothing is going to happen on the federal level, probably for the next four years, um, we have to get very, very serious about doing these things locally. And the thing is that they're really popular, right, that we saw a lot of red states vote for minimum wage increases. Um, If you can get them on the ballot, people vote for them. This is just True across the country, um, and that's true. You know, that's a thing that we can do right away. If you can't get it on the ballot, but you live in a state where you have a democratic governor who wants to look like a hero right now in the quote-unquote resistance, um, those are ways. Those are places that you can put pressure in order to get some wins for working people, uh, and that's going to be true. Of healthcare, as well as of wage increases, as well as of scheduling bills and things like this, as well as, you know, passing labor law that can supplant something if the Trump administration or the Supreme Court guts um, the existing labor law, right? Which is not that great anyway. Um, We're going to have to accept probably um, that right to work, national right to work is coming, which is a good thing that I explained what right to work is earlier because there are unions that are strong in right to work states. And we have to actually look at what they do right and learn from it and do it quick. Because too many unions have just assumed that they would have perennial dues check off, which is when your union can just take your, your union dues out of your paycheck. And that they didn't actually have to engage the workers that much, that they didn't really think of like shop floor struggle as an important thing to maintain. Um, You know, I will joke that like the bosses never gave up on the class war and the unions sort of thought that they had for a long time. And then the period from the, you know, the seventies, especially after Reagan killed the the air traffic controllers union to, you know, the re um, the sort of um, reintroduced war on the worker that started after the tea party wave, we really, you know, that the labor was not ready for any of that in a way that is disturbing. And we should look back at our history and understand why that was a mistake. Um,
0: and there's sort of a parallel situation. I I had this conversation with someone in a prior interview with political parties where the first thing Republicans do when they get unified control of a state government is pass right to work and destroy and decimate union power. That's like plan. That's the top of the to do list. Yeah. The first thing Democrats do when they get unified control is not to pass laws that will assist unions in growing. So there's this. Um, Republicans have a much more clear-eyed view of of what the significance of labor, uh, organized labor, really is.
1: Democrat, let's just be really real here. A lot of Democrats would also be happy to see unions go away. Yeah. Like no, that that's real. They would be perfectly fine with that. Andrew Cuomo has put so much political capital into inflating charter schools, which everybody loves because they don't have teachers unions. So like we should, and Rahm Emanuel is the, uh, everybody's favorite union buster in Chicago, right? Right now he's having a great time sort of foisting all that off on Bruce Rauner, who is like the wrecking crew incarnate in, in Illinois. But Rahm Emanuel is perfectly happy to close 50 schools, lay off thousands, literal thousands of unionized teachers. Um, His education department is right now trying to fire one of the um, most outspoken activist teachers who had led test boycotts, was a founding member of the Congress of Rank-and-File Educators. Her name is Sarah Chambers. Um, You should all pay attention to this because this is what Democrats do to working people.
0: Um, I want to play a listener question on worker centers.
1: All right. Hey, Dan, this
0: is uh, Alex McMillan calling. Um, I had a question for uh, Sarah Jaffe. Um, really looking forward to the upcoming interviews. Um, so, my question was uh, regarding worker centers. Um, I was curious as to Sarah's take on the role that um, worker centers have played, um, especially in right-to-work states uh, to build um, worker confidence and how worker centers um, have utilized trainings or um, allocated resources to help in struggles where uh, union density remains low. Um, Thank you so much. All right, have a good one.
1: So worker centers, I mentioned the Retail Action Project, which is a worker center that was seeded by um, the retail, wholesale and department store workers in New York to work with non-unionized retail workers. Um, They've been really important, and like he said, they've been really important in right-to-work states where there hasn't been a union base. They've also been very, very important in working with undocumented workers um, and, in many cases, really targeting their um, their programs and their assistance and their legal support in helping undocumented workers who, for many reasons, end up um, often sort of less likely to go for an official union campaign. Um And so this is a a super, super significant factor that's risen up in the last several years. We need like thousands more of them. Um, The problem is the money, right? And so when you see things, um, worker center and sort of um, what often gets called alt labor, although I hate that term because it treats the workers like they're different kinds of workers and they're not what we've seen is that a lot of these projects are started and funded by unions. And so, um, the retail action project is still around, they're still doing great work, um, and they're still supported by RWDSU. In other cases, they are funded by foundations and with the, all of the caveats that come along with dealing with foundation funding. Although I should be very clear that also union funding is precarious. Um, notably the, um, United Food and Commercial Workers cut off its, um, Walmart organizing program, our Walmart, um, after, you know, they had spent a lot of money on it, but Walmart is the biggest employer in this country and it deserves to have a lot of money spent on it. Um, and so, you know, what happens is that when you're not bringing in money from worker dues, basically when the, when the workers are not funding the union, when the workers are not, you know, enough to support the union, which is often the case when we're talking about worker centers. Um, it's also often the case that when we're talking about, Um, very low wage workers, they don't have much money. So we're, you know, we're, there's this struggle of like, what, then how do these things get funded? How do these things get supported? Who's doing the work? Um, Some of them are run entirely by volunteers, which is exhausting. Um, And so, you know, this is, this is the real struggle, but it's been super, super significant in a lot of workforces, particularly immigrant workers. And I just think that, again, right now we are looking down the barrel of national right to work, of maybe public sector collective bargaining being stripped away. We need to be exploring every potential angle, every potential way to get workers organized. And the thing is that, like, despite the fact that union density is down, people are thinking about themselves in terms of class and in terms of their relationship to work, um, in a way that had sort of faded through the nineties, right. That like neoliberalism wanted us to all be entrepreneurs now. And these days, you know, college students are realizing that they're working class, um, that we see people attracted to a very clear class message that came from Bernie Sanders and a very clear class message that came from Donald Trump. We should be clear about that. Um, he was full of shit, but he said it and people, at least some people thought he meant it. Um, and so this is, you know, there's, there's huge, huge opportunity right now. Um, the fact that the strike has come back as a center of the conversations around resisting Trump, right, that we've seen major day without an immigrant strikes on May Day back in February, um, including ones that spread sort of very underground by social media, not through the usual organizations, um, the fact that this kind of labor consciousness is still here in this country, that they haven't been able to kill it, even with all of the attacks on unions and all of the rhetoric about just, you know, you're going to be an, an entrepreneur now and every Uber driver is a small business person. We still have residual class consciousness and we've got to figure out ways to organize that and to, to make it um, powerful and to figure out ways to shut to it down, basically.
0: Sarah Jaffe, so much more that I want to ask you about. But for this time, your second time, the first time, two time guest on the dig, thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Jaffe is a Nation Institute reporting fellow and the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio. And please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help.